I've been warning you guys about Christian nationalism for a while now. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes Marjorie Taylor Greene screaming from the rooftops that she's a Christian nationalist. So let's find out what that is. Uh, to help us do that, we're gonna bring on Catherine Stewart. She's the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She studied the religious right for over a decade. And recently, she had a New York Times column called Christian Nationalists Are Excited About What Comes Next. That means we should be really worried about what comes next. Uh, Catherine, welcome, and tell us what Christian nationalism is. Great to be here, thanks for having me. Christian nationalism is basically the idea that America was founded as a so-called Christian nation, and our laws should be based on the Bible. It's the idea that we've somehow moved away from that, and the right kind of Americans need to take it back. It's a radically anti-democratic ideology. It sort of conflates the idea of America with very specific religious and and cultural identities. It sort of divides us versus them, the pure versus the impure. And more than just an ideology, it's also a political movement. It's an organized quest for power. And the strength of this movement is in its dense organizational infrastructure, which consists of right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, networking organizations that serve to get the leadership of the movement on the same page, very sophisticated data initiatives. The movement works through a lot of religious infrastructure. And really what unites it is not so much any sort of theological distinctions because it includes you know, representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion, but more a common political vision, a sort of anti-democratic political vision that believes that America should be dominated by a sort of right thinking plutocratic elite. So let's talk about that a little bit because you know, usually what happens in mainstream media is the minute you mention religion, everybody gets scared and they say everything's the same, don't look into anybody's religious beliefs, etc. Now, the reality of course is no, everybody's religious beliefs are not the same. And much more importantly, the Constitution says we shall not establish a religion. So if people kept their religion out of politics, then great, we wouldn't have to talk about it at all. But but they're not keeping it out of politics. This group is saying, let's put, I was gonna say, let's put Christianity into America because at least in terms of America's constitutional laws, it's not based on Christianity. It specifically says, and the founding fathers said, do not base it on Christianity. We did not do that, right? So we have all the quotes and stuff. But I'm curious about the anti-democratic part, right? So they could say, hey, I wish America was a Christian nation, but it isn't. The Constitution says we can't establish a religion. Oh Well, golly gee shucks, go home, and then I got no problems with them, right? But since America is not a Christian nation, how do they plan on making it one? Well, a lot of it is through the courts. I mean, we hear a lot about the Supreme Court, don't we? You know, and they're incredibly unpopular decisions, like you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But we don't hear a lot about groups like the Federalist Society, which is an organization as part of the the Christian nationalist movements. I would say large right wing legal apparatus, and it has played played a really outsized role in shaping the Supreme Court and other courts. I mean, all six conservative members of the Supreme Court have current or former ties to the Federalist Society. Ninety percent of Trump's appellate court appointees nominees had had ties to the Federalist Society as well. 
So, um, you know, it shows that the infrastructure of the movement is very heavily focused on, you know, they know very well that if you can't, if you can't get a majority of people to agree with your vision, you can really change the society through through the courts. And that's one of the ways that they're doing that. Yes, so that's one of the ways. And, you know, sometimes people have conspiracy theories. Oh, You have to be a Mason to become president. The Masons secretly control. No, there's nothing secret. All the justices went to federal society meetings. The federal society very publicly picked the ones that were gonna be on the Supreme Court. And there was basically two rules. One is, will you do everything corporations tell you to do? And they're like, yes, sir, I pledge loyalty to all multinational corporations. And the second rule is, will you be an over the top Christian fundamentalist and rewrite the rules that basically democracy doesn't agree to. And so that's one way of being anti-democratic. But recently, Catherine, there's been something even more troubling, which is the call to violence. So we've seen that now on you know the 4chans and the Reddits and all that stuff for a long, long time. And then it grew and grew and then more politicians started talking like that. Certainly Trump did way January 6th. But what about these Christian nationalists concerns you the most when it comes to the topic of violence? Well, agree. I mean, this is a movement that supported Trump's, uh, Trump's coup attempt. I don't think we can really understand what happened on January 6th without understanding the role of Christian nationalism, not just in its ideology, which said that you know a lot of the extremist groups uh, that uh, engaged in that uh, coup attempt uh, were persuaded that Trump was uh, the God's guy, and if Trump was um, you know lost the election, it must be against God's will. So they were prepared to do these radical actions. But also the networks of Christian nationalism spread lies of a stolen election and really primed that base to believe them. But beyond that, I mean, right now, we're seeing that there's overwhelming evidence that Trump is engaged in espionage. And a lot of the leaders of the key organizations of the movement, I'm thinking about people like Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council or Bob McEwen of the Council for National Policy or some of these other folks, Chad Connolly of Faith Wins, they've actually stood by and and actually promoting the idea, this you know idea of the attack on the FBI through. You can see them; they have signatures in a new memo that was just released by the the Conservative Action Project. It's an organization that has some affiliations with the Council for National Policy. The list of signatories is enormous. I mean, just includes people. Who lead ALEC, you know, the American Legislative Exchange Council, Freedom Works, and other groups like that. So these are not like fringe groups on the far edges of the right. These are actually, you know, major players in the Republican Party. They play a role in funding these Republican politicians in drafting model legislation. And then, of course, you have those on the sort of religious right side of it, which, you know, they they are. Uh, you know, they claim to be churches. Family Research Council just sort of obtained uh, status as a church, but they actually engage engage in act, activity that is very, um, you know, it, it's very partisan to be honest. You know, when you go to their events, and I've gone to of a number course. of their events, you know, they'll hand out voter guides, leaving no no confusion about which way you're supposed to vote. Yeah, so what I'm curious about though is the turn. So these guys have been around a long time. I've been trying to tell people, look, they have these insane ideas about end times. They're trying to actually push towards that. It's very dangerous. People can say, no, no, they're not really gonna do any of that stuff. So a couple of things you had in your New York Times column that made me 
go, oh, it looks like the turn has begun. One was the language that the politicians are using. These are big uh, guys on their side, including Trump. So I'm gonna give you three quotes real quick. Uh, Trump said at their event, and that's the Road to Majority Policy Conference, um, the greatest danger to America is the destruction of our nation from the people from within. And you know the people I'm talking about. Already that's super dangerous. Right. It's, it is really, frankly, very dangerous. I mean, identifying fellow Americans as the greatest danger to America from within. I mean, it shows that, frankly, um, you know, in, in previous eras, um, the religious right, I would say, during the Cold War, for instance, they were much more focused on geopolitical foes. And now they're actually, you know, focusing on um, fellow Americans as an internal uh, danger, but not even as. Um, you know, people with different viewpoints. I mean, I've, uh, you know, at that last Road to Majority conference and and the one previously, which I also attended, I heard Democrats and Democratic organizations described as satanic, demonic. Um, you know, in in this incredibly dehumanizing language, and it's it's. Uh, I saw the other day that Eric Metaxas, who is another sort of thought leader of the religious right, is describing uh, Democratic organizations as 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 unhuman, basically. This kind of dehumanizing language has preceded some of the most troubling and disgraceful episodes in human history. We saw it in Russia, where on state TV, you had, you've, I've seen some of their very popular presenters describe Ukrainians as you know little devils and, and say, you good Orthodox soldiers, you need to go finish them off. I mean, it, 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 this is is really dangerous. Dangerous, and it really hits home the fact that this is a movement that doesn't believe in representative democracy and is willing to, frankly, throw our national security under the bus um, in order to um, pursue its agenda. Yeah. I do want to say something. I don't think all of them believe in the end times. The movement includes, you know, um, not it. It includes some evangelicals. It excludes other evangelicals. It includes representatives of other faith traditions, and it even derives support from some people who don't particularly identify as Christian at all. And what really unites the movement is is a common political vision. But they they're using that religious language to sort of. You know, they're exploiting their rank and file in order to exploit the rest of us. This is really a leadership driven movement, but they use that religious rhetoric and they certainly use the culture wars like, you know, shiny baubles to dangle in front of the rank and file to, yeah. to try to get them to vote yeah. for the, um, you know, shape their thought patterns and, and get them to vote for right. the hyper conservative political candidates that the movement favors. And now they're shaping political patterns and thoughts into violence. Uh, here's another quote, the backlash is coming, just mount up and ride to the sounds of the guns. And they're all over this country, it's time to take this country back. That's not a minor figure, that's United States Senator Rick Scott, who said that to the lunatics that are watching and warmly received that call to violence and murder, by the way. And, and well, again, you know, yeah. So hold on, Catherine, yeah, I, I, do, I do wanna ask you one thing. So uh, I, I think, look, um, I don't care what denominations they're from. I don't care if they have non-religious and religious people. And I don't know that they've ever reconciled a single logical thought in their heads. But I, my last question was gonna be about what seven mountains dominionism is, because I need to know what particular kooky thing that they're thinking of. But I mean, what you said also made me curious. Okay, you got a bunch of denominations together. Who's gonna be Lord King? 
you know, is it going to be the Protestants, the Evangelicals? Is it going to be, you know, Orthodox Jews? I mean, you're saying anybody, right? No, it's Christian nationalists. So who's going to be your king dictator, right? Because there is no democracy where you base it on a theocracy. It's, those are two different, separate, and opposed forms of government. That's absolutely true. Look, this isn't about religion at the end of the day, and it's not about the culture wars, it's about political power. And they love Trump, who no one would think of as a values guy, right? Because he did everything they wanted. They gave him, he threw open the doors to them. He gave them right wing justices that they wanted so they could pursue their agenda through the courts. He gave them unprecedented political access and power. And most importantly, I think, you know, a very or to an underappreciated degree, he gave them access to public money. A lot of the movement's activism is really directed at obtaining taxpayer funding for the religious initiatives that they want, including we see this most obviously in the school arena where that, you know, we saw everybody's talking about the Dobbs decision, but the Carson versus Macon decision, which happened in the same, you know, section of Supreme Court decisions has frankly widened the door to for religious organizations to obtain taxpayer funding for their schools. All right, but real quick, Seven Mountains Dominionism. Uh, okay. What what Seth, is that that they're going to? Because it Seth used to be fringe, and now you I saw in your article that they're now doing like symposiums on it, or some they're bringing it out of the closet and saying, yeah, yeah, we actually do want this, and they're willing to say it publicly. So what is it? That's right. It's really being an idea that's being mainstreamed in the movement. Seven Mountains Dominionism is the idea that supposedly right-thinking Christians. Now let's remember. Liberal Christians, forget about it. Moderate Christians, no way. A certain type of Christian. So it's the idea that a certain type of the seven mountains or sometimes molders or peaks of culture, as they call it, should be dominated by supposedly right thinking Christians, including government, finance, education, and things like that. Again, it's a radically anti democratic ideology, but it also comes with it. So they cast that, or some of the you know godfathers and founders of Seven Mountains Dominionism, cast this idea of dominating those seven peaks of of civilization as quote taking dominion back from Satan. It comes out of sort of religious traditions that actually believe in you know the idea of Satan and if anything that's not sort of if if you know. The right-thinking folks aren't dominating, then Satan is controlling that, and it sort of corresponds to this idea that democratic organizations are not merely, you know, you know, people comprised of people who have different ideas about, you know, maybe we share some of the same goals, maybe have different ideas about how to get there, right? No, this is satanic, this is unhuman, demonic, and it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous, yeah. and it has been mainstreamed within the movement. If you're thinking of doing a takeover of the US government by right wing Christians that only have one correct way of thinking, you are not for democracy. You are for a theocracy where religious mullahs rule the rest of us and we live in servitude of them. So I just want these dominionists to make up their mind. Are you a fundamentalist Christian or are you an American? Because you actually can't be both. You can't say I love America and I'd like to turn it into a dictatorship of one religious guy who agrees with me. That is the exact opposite of America. 
So Catherine Stewart's done some amazing reporting about it. Everybody check out her book too, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Catherine, thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. All right, this is one of my favorite stories. Gregory Greco started out on Wolfpack. He's now part of the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. And he might soon become a state senator there. Uh, and actually has an excellent chance of that for reasons that we're gonna explain. So this is one of you guys uh, and and hopefully soon uh, he, he might be in the state legislature. All right, so let's bring him on. Greg, how you doing brother? I'm great, I'm excited to be here. Um, this is one of my bucket list moments. I've been following TYT for 15 years and I'm just really thrilled to be able to talk to you about my race and the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. No, I, I love it man, your story's perfect. So. Um, you and I have met before because of Wolfpack, okay, and because you've come out to Young Turks events. Uh, so tell us how you got into Wolfpack, and also tell us your Wolfpack uh, nickname. Well, I'll start off with my nickname. Uh, Josh Aces gave it to me, like I think the second meeting we had, and it's Big Swag. And I have to say, I love that nickname. Um, I, I think, Jenk, I was like one of your first 50. Um, Donors, uh, I remember watching, I think it was a Saturday night at 11 p.m. Um, when you had Occupy Wall Street and when you chanted out the Wolfpack um, website. Uh, and I, I don't know if it was that night or the next morning, but I, as soon as I heard it, I went right to the website and donated. So Wolfpack, I thought was a fantastic idea from the get go. And then, um, you know, I tried to get involved a couple times and it didn't work. But I remember one one night I just sat down and I talked to my wife. I said, you know, I'm in a rut and I really wanna do something meaningful. She said, well, what do you wanna do? And I wasn't sure I was gonna say this, but I blurted out, I wanna join Wolfpack. So I made a call uh, to the um, director at the time, Justin Royas. Um, and I had an hour conversation with him and I said, you know, this sounds good and then I met. Uh, Bob Raphael, Josh Aces, and uh, the core members of what became the the I five. We were the fifth state to call for resolution to call on an Article Five convention to overturn Citizens United, and um, that core um, is still some people who are doing phenomenal canvassing for my campaign, donating, um, and and we're we're very close. We have a group chat and we chat every day. But um, you know, um, you know, I, I was through. Through our Rhode Island Wolf Pack, that I got more involved in politics, and and really we we engaged a lot in the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, and I was also involved in in 2020. So uh, Rhode Island is one of the states where Wolf Pack won. So Greg's part of that winning team, uh, and uh, and uh, he might win here again because of the seat that he's going for. So Cynthia Mendez is running for lieutenant governor as part of this cooperative. We're gonna come back to what this cooperative is amazing in Rhode Island. It's it's actually a radical new thing that's happening in American politics that I love. Radical in a great sense. Um, but Cynthia is one of the leaders of that. She's running for lieutenant governor under that. And Greg, you're running for old Senate seat, correct? That's correct, yes, I'm running for Cynthia's Senate seat. I was very involved with Cynthia's campaign. I was running for the district committee, which is just a safeguarding kind of position that doesn't really have any power. It really gatekeeps usually Democrat, you know, mainstream Democrats. But she asked me to be on her district committee. So I had to get 50 signatures for me and I got 50 signatures for Cynthia. 
And uh, through that time, I really got to know Cynthia. And I realized what an incredibly powerful um, voice she is in the progressive movement. I knew she would go far and we worked really hard on that campaign. I knocked over 500 doors and she ended up beating the finance chair who had been in office for 10 years. He had an $80,000 war chest, which is a huge amount of money in a Rhode Island Senate race. And she won 62 to 38. And that was, you know, I thought I was only gonna have one amazing political moment when we, won that resolution for the Young Turks. And that was one of the greatest moments of my life. But I got to repeat it when Cynthia won as well, 6238. So Cynthia has an opportunity now to run with Matt Brown. Matt Brown's running for governor and she's running for lieutenant governor. And they're running alongside the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. And when she told me that she was gonna run for lieutenant, Governor position. The first thing I was like, okay, so you know, let's brainstorm. Who do you think we're gonna, you know, ask to run for the seat? And Cynthia's like, I, I got that covered, Greg. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, I think this person, that person's like, Greg, I think you should run for the seat. And I thought about it for a while. You know, I've never, I've always been someone who's been an activist and never a politician. I, you know, I don't call myself a politician. I'm a regular guy running for office. And I'm a special education teacher, and I'm someone who's fought for, for. Um, for the average person for a long time, you know, I, I fight for people who are not seen and heard. And I thought about, you know, being a special education teacher and my experience at Wolfpack. And then I thought, you know, we need people in office who are gonna be unbought and unbossed. And I know I'm gonna be one of those people because I care too much about what politics and what democracy means. And, and I care too much about the average person to not do that. Yeah, well, so you've proven that because you know at Wolfpack, obviously, we're trying to get all money out of politics, and the cooperative. If you join it, you cannot take money from corporate PACs, corporate lobbyists, or fossil fuel companies. So you've proven that over and over again, and and you've won over and over again. So that that's wonderful to hear from a progressive. So big swag and and big victory. So let's see if we can make that a trifecta here. Let me give. Uh, the information for Greg's websites and, and links. This is down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. You just click on it in, this, in the description box. But you see there the RI is in Rhode Island, politicalcoop.com, and then it's got slash Greg dash Greco. Um, but uh, as I said, the, the links will be down below. So, Greg, uh, the question then, of course, is so she, Cynthia knocks off. Uh, this Senate finance chair, which is amazing. And she didn't just beat him, she beat him with a stick. Uh, so does that mean this district that you're running in now is safely progressive, not just blue, but progressive? Or do we not yet know that? I don't think we know that yet. Uh, I don't wanna take anything for granted. I'm running against someone who has an extremely high name ID. He is the East Providence City Council President. Um, he had a fundraiser thrown by him by the Senate president and the Senate majority leader several weeks after um, he announced. So the, the full weight of the establishment is behind him. Um, I think they, they thought because Cynthia is now running for lieutenant governor that there was an opening. But I'm here to prove that we can continue to have bold, progressive leadership, people who are unapologetic about what they believe and are able to articulate that at the doors and, and explain to people um, that they are gonna fight for them and not for the entrenched special interest. So I've been making that case uh, for, for 11 months now. I've been knocking doors 
constantly during this period. And I think we are making an effective case that this district will continue to be progressive and bold and, and fight for the average person. Yeah, if they come for you that hard and you still win, yeah, I mean, boy, you're living up to all your nicknames. <laughs> big swag, big win, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so so I love it, uh, but let's talk a little bit more about the co-op. So uh, do what do you think about its effectiveness in at least getting the message out to people of what it means in Rhode Island and, and that you and the other candidates are part of the co-op, like how do they know that? Well, I think in Rhode Island, we're quite well known. In fact, there's a political scene article every Monday in the Province Journal, which is the biggest newspaper in Rhode Island. And the front page of the last two political scenes were about co-op candidates running against leadership. The co-op is becoming a well-known political entity in Rhode Island is because we are out there every day, we're knocking on doors, we're talking to people, we're getting our, our message out. Um, you know, two years ago, we had a lot of success. Cynthia was not the only person uh, to win a, a big race. Tara Mack ran with the co-op and she won 59-41 against someone who had been in the Senate for almost 30 years, I believe. And we, we won um, 10 races across the state, including five in the Senate. And there's only 38 members of the Senate. So five members is actually a pretty significant amount. And we're coming again, we got 14 member people running in the Senate. And I think we have 14 in the House as well. So we're coming hard and we're coming strong for a political establishment and entrenched special interests that have been running Rhode Island for far too long. Man, that is super grassroots and super effective. That's what I love to see. So a progressive takeover of Rhode Island through the co-op would be amazing. And it would set an important precedent too. Similar thing happened in Oregon, not quite as well or as organized as Rhode Island. But it made a huge difference in the in the congressional races as well. When you have the state party taken over by progressives. So Greg, tell us what you guys would do in Rhode Island. If enough of the co-op members like yourself win, well, we have a very we we have a very clear platform that is on the Rhode Island Political Cooperative website, which I believe maybe attached this interview. I'll tell you some of the things we're going to start off: a nineteen dollar minimum wage. We're going to have we're fighting for a Green New Deal. For we're fighting for Medicare for all. We're fighting to build ten thousand low income and affordable housing units. Uh, Rhode Island's right now in the middle of a housing crisis, um, and you know we're going to fight for that. We're going to uh, fully fund our schools. We are going to ensure that no person freezes to death in the winter by building, um, um, you know, um, beds for for our unhoused neighbors, and making sure that we build enough to that no person needs to sleep outside because homelessness is a policy choice, and we choose not to make that. Choice. Yeah, I love this new race to the top. In the states, used to have a race to the bottom. Whoever has the worst regulations, businesses would go there, etc. Now, in California, we thought we were a big deal trying to get to eighteen dollar minimum wage. Now, you guys are going to nineteen dollar minimum wage. It's a race <laughs> to the top for top wages. I love it. And so, are you guys going to try to do universal health care at the state level if you if you win? 
Yeah, we're gonna try our best to do that. Um, you know, I think you know once we get an office, we're gonna strategize the best and most effective way to do that. Um, I would love to see us partner uh, with other states as well. Um, I think I think um, you know there might be some states who might be interested in, in, in kind of doing that. You know, across states, but we haven't talked about that as a Rhode Island political cooperative. So that's not a specific uh, thing. But I think that you know that we've agreed to, but. You know, I think we are going to be bold and make sure that every single person um, has health care and that no one ever goes bankrupt or lose all their money because they get sick ever again, at least in the state of Rhode Island. All right. Uh, everybody check out Matt Brown running for governor, Cynthia Mendez running for lieutenant governor uh, in the Rhode Island co op, and, and Greg Greco running for District 18 State Senate. Okay. They got to take the Senate. Uh, as well as those top positions to, in order to actually get you change in Rhode Island. So make sure you're looking at the links below. Uh, there they are again, Greg, a real American hero, an actual teacher that just cared about the country, got involved as an activist and now running and has an excellent chance of winning. Greg, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for all that you've done, brother. And thank you so much for having me, Jenk. This has really been one of the highlights of my life. Thank you, brother.